Hello and welcome to season two of the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm so excited to share today's episode with you as it's something really special. Ever since her phenomenal debut, The House of the Spirits became a global sensation in 1982, this writer has been one of the literary world's brightest stars. She has written 23 books and won dozens of awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which was awarded to her by Barack Obama. She has also lived the most extraordinarily interesting life. Brought up in Chile, her father was a cousin of Salvador Allende, the country's president, from 1970 to 73. She worked as a journalist there before fleeing to Venezuela after the Pinochet coup, where she began a new life as an author at the age of 39. She is also a noted philanthropist with her own foundation set up to honour the work of her late daughter Paula, who tragically died at 29 after suffering from the metabolic disorder Porphyria. Yes, it is none other than Isabel Allende. Now 77, she has just married for the third time and published a new book, A Long Petal of the Sea, an extraordinary epic that takes in six decades and was inspired by the real-life voyage of the Winnipeg cargo ship, which was chartered by the poet Pablo Neruda and carried 2,000 Spanish refugees fleeing Franco's fascists to Chile. I visited Isabel at her hotel in Soho while she was in town for a couple of days and I found her utterly fascinating to speak to. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's start with a new book. It's an astonishing work, fusing historical fact with fiction. And am I right in thinking you first heard of the Winnipeg mission in stories from your grandfather? The Winnipeg arrived in Chile with the Spanish uh, immigrants in 1939. I was born in 1942. So, but I was living in the house of my grandfather, and there were Spanish uh, immigrants that were the family's friends. So I saw these people who spoke a strange Spanish, in my opinion, (laughs) (laughs) with a strange accent, and I was told that they came from Spain. But it wasn't until many, many years later when I heard the real story of the Winnipeg and what Pablo Neruda had done to bring the ship and the Spaniards to Chile. It feels like a deeply personal book, not just because, as you say, you'd heard of these stories, and and not just because your godfather, Salvador Allende, makes an appearance in the book, uh, but also because it deals with the theme of migration, of having to flee, having to move, of being a foreigner in a new country. In the introduction you write, I have been a foreigner all my life, first as the child of diplomats, then as a political refugee, and now as an immigrant in the USA. How has that outsider status shaped your life and your writing career? I don't know how it has shaped my life, but obviously my writing has a definite search for a place. Place is important in my writing. Mm. And I have written books, uh, stories placed in many different places, places that I have visited. But I have the feeling that I am a permanent, eternal foreigner. That wherever I am, I have to learn the rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's good for a writer. The fact that I feel foreigner forces me to pay attention 
to observe carefully, to mm. listen, to mm. ask questions. And in the questions, you get the stories. As we know, you are a highly acclaimed author. You've written, I think it's 23 books. I think this is your 23rd. But you were 39 when you published your debut. Uh, so I'd like to ask a little bit about your life before you became an author. You grew up in a very eminent family. Your father was the cousin of Salvador Allende, as I've said. Although, in fact, he left when you were young and you were brought up by your mother and your grandparents. Is, is that correct? And can you tell me about it? My father abandoned my, the family, abandoned my mother, who had by then two babies and was very pregnant of the third baby when my mm. father sort of disappeared from our lives. That, this was in Peru. And my mother then returned to Chile to live with her parents. So I was brought up in my grandparents' house. Later, my mother married a diplomat and we started traveling a lot also. But the first few years of my life were in the house of my grandfather. And um, I would say that that marked my character and my life. As a child, I, I wouldn't say I had a happy childhood, but I had a very interesting one. Mm. And I think that that helps a lot because I can always go back to those memories to create new stories. Family is important for me, uh, so I'm always creating in my books community, family. And you're often described as incorporating elements of magical realism. You had an early introduction to the supernatural world through your grandmother. Can you tell me about that? My grandmother had the reputation of being clairvoyant, and she spent her life experimenting with the paranormal. So on Thursdays, there would be seances at home to call the spirits, the dead. And uh, she was experimenting with telepathy to trying to move objects without touching them and so forth. So, so I grew up with the idea that everything is possible, that the world is a very mysterious place. We don't have an explanation for everything. We don't control everything. And that also has helped me as a writer and in my life because I have had such a strange life. Uh, so many things have happened to me. And I always have the feeling that what I see, what's happening to me, is only part of reality. There's another part, another dimension of reality, where my grandmother and my daughter inhabit. And I am sort of in touch with that. I don't see ghosts, and I'm not doing seances at home. But I believe that there is much more than we can see. And you loved storytelling from a young age. I've read that you used to believe that characters came alive at night. I still do. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one particular anecdote that caught my attention. There was a particular volume that was locked in a cupboard that you uh, used yes, to read at Arabian night. Nights. Yes, can you tell me about that? When I was a teenager, not even a teenager, in puberty, I was 13, 12, 13 years old, we were living with my stepfather in Lebanon. And my stepfather had an armoire, a sort of closet, locked, always locked, where he kept his treasures, his clothes, first of all, that were never, nobody touched. And also cigarettes, whiskey, chocolates, stuff that the kids didn't have any access to. And among those treasures were four volumes of this mysterious book, 
my brothers would take the cigarettes and the whiskey. I would go for the books. <laughs> and with a flashlight, I read those books. It was A Thousand and One Nights, The Arabian Nights. That was supposed to be erotic, so I wasn't supposed to read it. <laughs> there were so many metaphors that I didn't understand because I didn't know the basics. I had no idea what an erection was, for example. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had to make, make that up in my mind. Those years, I could read those books never as a continuum. I, I would have to open the books just any page. I couldn't mark the pages and read with a flashlight, a paragraph here, a paragraph there, looking for the dirty parts, of course, and mixing up the stories. And that, I think, initiated me in the vice of fantasy and eroticism and storytelling. Before you got to do storytelling or fiction storytelling, as a living, you were a journalist, as I said. Can you tell me a little bit about your journalistic career? I started working as a journalist in a women's magazine called Paula. And it was a feminine feminist magazine, the first one in Chile. We were four women working there, young women. And for me, it was a happy, wonderful time of my life. I was recent, I was married, I had two children, but I was discovering a language to express the anger I felt against the patriarchy. I didn't know that I, that was called feminism yet. Mm. There I found out that there were feminist writers in Europe and in the United States, that there was a language to express all this, that I wasn't alone. Mm. And that was a great time in my life. So I did that. I wrote in the magazine. I was always given the crazy assignments. If, for example, to hire myself as a chorus girl in a cabaret, things <laughs> like that. <laughs> then I also had a TV program and I was writing theater. So I felt that my life was full, that I was just having a great time. And then we had the military coup in 1973 and everything ended in 24 hours. And eventually I had to leave and I went to live in Venezuela where I couldn't find a job as a journalist. Can you tell me a little bit about the coup, you actually were politically active, you hid dissidents and... Look, that was not being politically active. Many people were doing that. Mm. I was not involved in politics before. Of course, I voted for Allende and I was totally against the military coup and against the, the, the fascist dictatorship that followed. But I wasn't a political animal in any way. Mm. And I ended up hiding people and trying to help people get out of the country or send information out of the country because many people were doing it mm. and many journalists were doing it. Mm. And because I didn't know the consequences, we didn't have any experience mm. in dictatorship in Chile. Mm. So I didn't know what might, might happen. I, we discovered that slowly. You were put on a government wanted list. I don't know to, a, to what, which extent I was wanted. Mm. There was no information at the time, mm. just rumors. Mm. And uh, there was a point when I was afraid and I decided I would leave. I got a warning and decided that I would leave and come back soon. So I left alone and I went to Venezuela where I spent some time and then my husband in Chile realized that it wasn't safe for me to go back and he reunited with me in Venezuela and brought the children with him. You've said that your first novel wrote itself. In fact, it began as a series of letters, is that correct? As one letter to my grandfather. My grandfather was dying in Chile. I was very close to him mm. and I couldn't go back 
to bid him farewell. Mm. So I started this sort of spiritual letter for him. I didn't know if he was ever going to read it. And I wanted to tell him that I remembered everything he had ever told me, all the mm. anecdotes, all the family memories, I had them with me. And to prove that, I started with the story of Rose. Rose was my grandfather's first fiancé, who was apparently ha had the reputation of being very beautiful. And she died poisoned before they could get married. Mm. The, the circumstances of her death were never clear. It could have been a mistake, it could have been a crime, we don't mm. know. It was never quite clear. And many years later, my grandfather married the youngest daughter in that family, my grandmother. Mm. And this is what I wanted to tell him in the, in the beginning of the letter. I remember Aunt Rosa, great Aunt Rosa, and her story. And that's how the book begins, with Rosa the Beautiful. You're a big letter writer. You once said that you began every day writing to my mother. your mother. Why did you start the day that way? My mother and I w were emotionally very close, mm -hmm. but we never lived in the same place, except for a few years in Venezuela. So my mother and, and I established the habit of writing to each other when I was 16. And I was living in, in my grandfather's house in Chile, and she was in Turkey. Mm -hmm. The letters would take like two months, but it didn't matter. We wrote every day. And we kept that to the very end of her life. My mother died a year ago, and the last thing she did was write to me at 7 o'clock in the evening, and at 9 she had the crisis, and from six days later she was dead. I have 24,000 letters from my mother. Wow. And they are very well organized in mm. plastic boxes year by year. I have her, own li her whole life in letters. How amazing. What an incredible record. I miss have. her terribly because I was so used to, to this correspondence, to her voice, and to tell her everything that happened to me. I, I can't write a journal, but the letters to my mother were like a journal. Mm. So now I feel that what I don't write, I forget immediately. I don't know what happened yesterday. But before, when I could write to my mother, I, I kept record of everything. It was a life well lived, fully lived. And am I right in thinking she used to be the only person allowed to see pre-published drafts of your Yeah, but that, that was until she was around 85. Mm. In the last 10 years of her life, she, she was not my editor anymore. Mm. The House of the Spirits was initially rejected by publishers. Um, yes. How did that feel and, and what kept you persisting to get it published? I didn't even try to get it published. It was my mother who pushed it. Mm. And so she sent it to she had lived in Argentina where she had many friends and she sent it to Argentina to publishers there in Venezuela also to some publishers. One of them was a Chilean publisher and nobody was interested. And then one day uh, somebody told me you have to send it to an agent. Without an agent you will never be published. I didn't know that agents for books existed. So I sent it to the person that was recommended to me, Carmen Balcells in Barcelona. And she was the most famous agent for Spanish literature. She liked the book. She got me published, and the book was a big success. 
How did that feel when it became this global bestseller? I wasn't aware of it at the beginning because I was living in Venezuela and all this was happening in, in Europe. Mm. It was only a year later that I got contracts for every language and, and the first checks and all. all the, I, I wasn't aware of it. And then my, my agent was very wise. When she had the book published, she said, everybody can write a first good book. Mm. The f real writer is proven in the second book. Mm. So I was by then writing my second book to please my agent <laughs> when I heard about the success of the House of the Spirits. Can you tell me a little bit about your writing process? What, what sort of times of day do you write and, and where do you write? <laughs> I can write anywhere. <laughs> I wrote the House of the Spirits on the kitchen counter in the apartment in Venezuela. My second book of Love and Shadows, I put a board in the, I took out all the clothes from the closet, put a board and a light bulb and my typewriter. There were no computers then. And so I, at least I had that space that I could close the, the closet and, and there was this little space that was mine. And since then I have had all kinds of writing places. I start writing all my books on January 8th because I need a, a time to start so that I can save a few months a year without anything else, mm. trying not to travel, not, not much social life, just concentrate on the writing. Of course, sometimes I finish a book way before January 8th, so I, so I have a few months to research for the next book. Mm. Uh, usually I have a lot of research done before I start, and by January 8th I have an idea of a place and a time, nothing else. No plot. No plot, no characters, nothing. And then I start working. Every day I, I get up early, walk the dogs, and then write. I, I'm much better during the day. I'm not good at night. So I write during the day before I could do 10, 14 hours. Now I'm too old for that. So I write, um, I, I would say, six hours, maybe mm. eight. Mm. And by the time my husband gets home, I'm done. Do you ever get writer's block? I got writer's block after my daughter died. Mm. And I wrote a memoir called Paula. And uh, after that, for two or three years, I couldn't write. I, I couldn't write anything. I, I tried every day, but nothing. I, everything was flat, boring. I wasn't inspired at all. And then I remember that I'm a journalist by training. And if I'm giving a subject, and enough time to research, I can write about almost anything. So I gave myself a subject that would be as removed as possible from death and mourning and sorrow. And I wrote a book about aphrodisiacs, eroticism, mm. food, the mm. joy of life. Mm. Can I ask about the feminism that you mentioned earlier? There are lots of strong, feisty women in A Long Petal by the Sea, and at one point you say, and I love this, Chilean women are seductive, strong, and bossy, a lethal <laughs> combination. <laughs> I like how bossy is used in a positive way there as well. It's not an insult, it's, it's a good thing. You mentioned that you, you'd always felt this feminism, but you, you just didn't know what the term for it was. And, you know, I've read that you, you felt as though you were a feminist from the age of five. Where did that come from, that sentiment? I was born in a time and a place, in a family, my family was conservative, Catholic, patriarchal. My mother was the only 
female in the house because when my father abandoned her, she came to live with the three babies in her parents' house, and her brothers were still bachelors living at home. So it was a house of males. My grandfather, then my grandmother died, so my, gran my grandfather and my uncles. And my mother was so vulnerable, so frail. Now that, that I know my mother very well, I know she wasn't frail, she was strong, but, but the circumstances made her a sort of victim in a way. She had no money, no education to work or skill to work, three babies. She depended completely on her father and her older brother who helped her. And then much later, on the, her second husband, my stepfather. I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to be like my grandfather, to have a car, to have a job, to have money, to go and come without telling anybody what you, where you, you were or what you were doing. Mm. That, that freedom, that power that my grandfather had, that's what I wanted. Mm. And uh, I knew that being a girl made, would make it very difficult, but not impossible in a way. First, I, w I tried to be a boy, and then when that didn't work, I tried to be a nasty girl. <laughs> <laughs> I think that my mother was always a little bit shocked mm. that, that I would be this way so early in my life with no role models for it, because feminism was not a word in Chile yet. I read, and I don't quite know if this one's true or not, but I've read that you were once fired from a job translating romance novels <laughs> for making unauthorized changes and making the heroine sound more intelligent and making the endings less Cinderella and more independent. Is that true? Is that true? To a that's true, yes, to a certain extent. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Can you tell me about that? Well, that's, that's it. Uh, I didn't work there too long, um, <laughs> as you may imagine. But it took them like six months to discover the changes. I've mentioned Pablo Neruda already because, obviously, he's an anchor for the new book but you also had a rather amusing encounter with him is is that correct you met him and he gave you some unusual advice well he thought that i was a lousy journalist <laughs> and and he thought that i was not objective that i lied a lot and that probably i made up stories if i didn't have them and he said why don't you switch to literature where all these defects are virtues i didn't pay any attention to him I wrote The House of the Spirits eight years later, and I wasn't thinking of Neruda, really. But he was right. I am a lousy journalist. <laughs> Can I ask a little bit about uh, your philanthropy? Uh, you started the Isabel Allende Foundation in honor of Paola. Uh, can you tell those listening about the work it does? The, the mission of the foundation is to invest in the power of women and girls. And uh, before, we used to have a wide range of ways in which we'd, we would do th this. And I say we because it's my daughter-in-law and myself, but my daughter-in-law is who runs the foundation, Lori Barra. She's the soul of the foundation mm -hmm. and the one who really gave it a mission. Before she came to the foundation, my work was very scattered and now it's very focused. But after Trump was elected in the United States, we narrowed our focus to and, and targeted certain things that are in danger. Women's uh, right to, f to, I mean, reproductive rights, 
that now they are closing all the clinics and it's becoming more and more difficult in the United States to have an abortion mm -hmm. or to get contraceptive or to get in sexual in education. So all that um, is something that we, we feel that is a priority uh, in the mission, in, in the foundation, because a woman that has no control over her fertility and her body has no power at all. Mm. Then another thing that, that is very important for us is to give women skills and education to work, to, to be able to have means so that they are not economically dependent. And also now, because of the of the situation that we are living in the United States, we are very focused on immigrants, on migrant women in the border. Who, the situation is desperate, absolutely desperate. We have refugee camps on the other side of the wall in the southern border of the United States, and they don't call it refugee camps. They don't, they don't call the detention centers what they really are. They are private prisons. They are children in cages that have been separated from their parents. All that is our priority now. Reading some of the more visceral scenes uh, in the new book brought to mind those refugee camps and also the issue of women's reproductive rights without giving away too much of the plot to people. This is something that is examined. Was that a deliberate choice on your part? Because although it's at, I mean, it's set over six decades, but it begins in the late 30s. And even then, some of the scenes that you're describing could be scenes today in migrant camps in Europe, or as you say, at the US border. Was that a deliberate choice? No, that's a historical fact. Mm. Uh, when I did my research, and I uh, researched about the concentration camps in France mm. that were improvised in beaches that they closed with barbed wire. Mm. Uh, the situation then was uh, like the situation today. I didn't have to make it up. Mm. I have written several historical novels, and I see how humanity keeps repeating the same, mm. the same situations, the same mistakes. Mm. We evolve, we learn, mm. and we are not in the Middle Ages anymore. Mm -hmm. But we keep repeating certain things. And the, the plight of people who are displaced has been the same for, for centuries. You were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama in 2014. What was that like? Uh, and what is he like? <laughs> well, he's adorable, and so is Michelle. Uh, but I'm biased about this. Uh, and I was very proud and very happy to receive it because it's the highest honor, civil honor, that civilian or honor that a person can have in the United States. And being a foreigner, I'm I, being, it, it was just lovely to have it. But recently, I think three days ago, two days ago, uh, Trump awarded the same Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbo, who is mm -hmm. a right-wing bully who has been for decades spreading hatred and division and racism mm. in the United States. So I don't know if I, if I am so happy to have the Medal of Freedom now that he has it. What was it like uh, when you first met President Obama? Did you, you knew him already? I had met him before mm. and I have a lovely photograph of him when he had black hair before, <laughs> before he turned all gray. And I'm hugging him and it's a very lovely picture. I was very happy when he was elected. I felt that the United States had become a different country because of him, because of that election. In a way, I, 
I think it, we became very visible in the world in a good way, mm. never expecting that things would turn out so badly afterward. Are you optimistic about the future? Of course I am, because I've seen that everything changes, nothing lasts forever. What is next for you personally? Are you working on another book? I'm always working on something, some project of one kind or another. But now I've decided that I am going to have a much quieter life, no more book tours. I will keep writing. I want to enjoy my husband and the quiet life that I can have. You got married last year to your husband, is that correct? Yes. Can you tell me about that? Well, I divorced my former husband, Willie, in 2016. And um, a lawyer from New York heard me on NPR, contacted my office, then contacted me, wrote to me every morning and every evening for five months until <laughs> we met. And when we met, it was obvious that there was some attraction. Mm. Eventually, to make a long story short, he sold his house, gave away everything. He's a widower and uh, moved to my house with two bikes and some very dated clothes that <laughs> I promptly changed. <laughs> and he's, we've, been, we've been living together for um, two years now and it's working beautifully. How romantic, how romantic. People ask me all the time, because of the book actually, do you think pos it's possible to fall in love at, at the age that your protagonists fall in love? Of course it's possible. I, I, I know it is. I've, mm. I've experienced it myself. Mm. Mm. I've got one final question, which is a question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, which is, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say there is time for everything. You don't have to live in a hurry. And I would also say, start writing fiction earlier. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Isabel, thank you so much. You thank have you. been such a joy and an honor to speak to. And to everyone listening, A Long Petal of the Sea is out now. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania. And more importantly, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it, as well as its position in the charts. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.